Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the Paul McCartney podcast. My name is Ryan Brady. I'm here with Chris Mercer. This is album one of Paul McCartney's solo career, 1970s McCartney, an album that found Paul at the end of his relationship with the Beatles. And in Paul's own words, I just wanted to get back to absolute basics. Chris, what was the first time you heard this album? Do you have any memories? Yeah, th- this album came pretty early on for me as a McCartney fan. I want to say it was maybe my fifth Paul McCartney album. I bought it the same day I bought Ram. For the audio files out there, I'll mention that those were Columbia reissues of <laughs> Ram and McCartney. Those were not original Apples or mid-70s Capitals. So I got those two albums together, but I already knew Ram quite well. I was just finally getting my copy, having gotten by with a cassette for a while and um this would have been 1984 i think i was 12 years old something like that yeah the albums i knew by paul at that point were tug of war pipes of peace speed of sound and ram so i guess mccartney was my fifth mccartney album and knowing those four albums pretty well by the time i heard it i i really didn't know what to make of mccartney (laughs) i mean i loved the the big songs and I was confused by the rest of it, but intrigued. And it, it jibed with what I understood of late Beatles at that time. Yeah. It, the, the fragments, the, the kind of little experimental tracks, the eclectic quality of it made sense to me in a late Beatles context. So It certainly makes sense in a late Beatles context. If, you just, if this is your entry point to Paul McCartney, it can be a little jarring. Instrumentals, yeah. stuff Paul wrote as a kid weird little sound experiments, a huge song here and there, every night, junk, maybe I'm amazed. Even that would be something. Stuff like Karina Crory or Valentine Day. What is is this? Glasses. (laughs) Glasses. What's this little little bit of music here at the end of Glasses, this little piano song? That that haunted me for a long time. Yeah, I guess let's just kick it off. This uh, number one album, two million copies sold, if you can believe it, with track one, The Lovely Linda. A test recording for the Studer. Which I had not realized that he is singing the vocal and playing the guitar live onto one track. Well, it's an interesting thing, by the way, about the Studer. I I can't claim to have great expertise about this old tape machine, but I've seen pictures of it, and I understand about the recording process. The mic he's using appears to be a Sennheiser dynamic mic. I don't know the exact number, but the shape of it anyway is exactly that of like a Sennheiser 421 today. So it's a dynamic mic, doesn't need any external power source. Something he could plug directly into an amplifier. There'd have to be an amplifier. 
And I saw a picture of the Studer, uh, maybe it's in the McCartney archive book, uh, where you can see the back of the device yeah. where the XLR inputs are. And there seems to be a big bank of amplifiers back there with inputs. So my guess is he has maybe one or two inputs per track. I don't see any place to set the gain. I guess they're calibrated to a particular gain, and that's that. And he's plugging a dynamic mic straight in there. There was a mention in the Tom Doyle book that the Studer had been, had been modified somehow by EMI for him to be able to use it. I think that's what the modification is. This is all me speculating. I don't have sure. uh, specs or anything for the tape machine. But in order for it to have worked the way it apparently worked, him just plugging in the mic and setting levels by moving the mic around, apparently. Yeah, you want to... He was saying it's a little too distorted. Well, we need to move the mic away. No UV uh, meters, too. Right. Right. No meters, just by ear to tape. It's yeah. Now, I'm guessing they must have they must have remixed the tracks later at Abbey Road. But yeah, that's a pretty <laughs> roughing it kind of way to record there. Impressive. Honest, as he's saying. Oh, you can't get any more honest than that album, which was really like you were saying an extension of what was going on with the Beatles at the time. It really does make sense that Paul would go about doing something like this. He's, he's fresh off of recording the Get Back project, which was ultimately released as Let It Be, where they wanted this whole back-to-basic sort of thing. Some of these songs are demoed or performed for the other Beatles at this time and rejected. There's that hilarious Teddy Boy on the anthology, <laughs> Anthology yes. 3, where John is actually doing like a... Like a Grab your partner, do yeah. <laughs> get meaner than that. I mean, Paul seems to laugh it off and keep singing. And, uh, I think Ringo's playing along. But, uh, yeah, it's, 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 un- it's uncomfortable. But, yeah, and then also, I mean, on earlier Beatles albums, Paul, he was making those tape loops. He was, like, sitting in his house as a famous guy in London, probably Cavendish, making tape loops, and what ultimately yes. became Tomorrow Never Knows. Right. So... Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, this would be up his alley have his own tape machine at home and he was you know making his own tracks on the white album for the most part right Mm -hmm. so working alone was getting to be something he was pretty comfortable with yeah Yeah. martha my dear ultimately that could have fit on mccartney blackbird could have fit on mccartney mother nature's son so he was already doing this he was already for for years now he was sort of used to this so this is the perfect sort of escape or self-therapy to avoid Klein and just the nightmare that was the Beatles breakup. Seems like it's uh, maybe the beginning of the workaholic period for McCartney too, where he's using constant work on music to kind of get away from depression about what's happening in his life. Yeah. But as you had pointed out to me in a previous conversation, we had this period, this 1968 to 70, 71, maybe 72 Maybe his most prolific period. I think it is. It's just songs for McCartney, for the Beatles, for Ram, for Wildlife, stuff that made it into Venus and Mars. 
Yeah, I, since reading Luca Perazzi's book, it's been a really, really been a revelation for me that songs that I took for granted were from 74, from 76, from 80, whatever. They were all written in 70 and 71. So anyway, you want to get back to the to the tracks? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, lovely Linda, a little. I mean, forty three seconds long, little ditty, unfinished. One thing I didn't realize as I was doing research for this was that there's a whole mariachi style fragment that finishes the song that was recorded that nobody's heard, still unreleased. Really? Yeah. I did not know about that. Yeah. Just a simple track, vocal, guitar, another acoustic bass and then this and we'll we'll find this through this whole album hand slaps on a book yeah that's what sounds so great about this album things like that the pots and pans and yeah some just some great really creative percussion sounds throughout the album that would be something that really would be something Something to meet you in the falling rain, mama. Meet you in the falling rain. Meet you in the falling rain, mama. Meet you in the falling rain. That would be something. That would be something. Yes. That would be something is a song that uh, I never cared for like everyone else because it's just uh, two lines. <laughs> it's two <laughs> lines and has only a verse that repeats. Well, but, um, I will agree It's a with beautiful little record, man. It's got some real atmosphere. The record, the record is amazing. And this is one I, that I George agree Harrison that. Yeah. liked. It's got some great mouth percussion on it. Yeah, that... That, that part's great. I will agree. I will agree with you though that the song, yeah, it's it, it's not much of a song. Yeah, there's that. What is it? Uh, I forget. Is it live from MTV or wherever it is? Oh uh, yeah, unplugged. Yeah. Oh, unplugged. that is such a. They took all the soul out of it. They're just playing the song. They're not making the record. That's right. They're they're like a show band at that point, sort of playing playing the song and not much else. You know, it, in order for that would be something to be fun to listen to, you do need the original record. Yeah. And that's a homemade homemade song, right? That's a Cavendish song. Yeah, made entirely at Cavendish Avenue. Written, Paul says, either sixty eight or sixty nine. I mean, per, mm-hmm. would perfectly fit on the White Album. I don't know if yeah. it would have oh, yeah. made it on the Abbey Road, but... Um, no, it would have made perfect sense as a, probably in a slightly shortened version as one of those little transition songs yeah. on the White yeah. Album. McCartney's quote... Which, by I, the way, is, is you know, the, uh, the Lovely Linda is essentially one of those. And we'll see lots of those, these little one minute or less songs that really are just getting you from the last song to the next one. Can you take me back where I came from, brother? Can you mm-hmm. take me... All those... That's the stuff. Same mentality. My favorite quote that I read on this from Paul. Okay, we're already dealing with an album that's called McCartney, right? So this is what he says. It's very McCartney. Very, (laughs) very me. (laughs) Then the album veers off into Valentine Day. 
made up on the spot, another Cavendish recording, entirely instrumental. Yeah, there's a defiant quality to the way the album begins. McCartney always denies he's being defiant with these things, but maybe it's unconscious. I I don't know, but he's starting us out with a little test recording, followed by a a two-line song, followed by a little jam. That's how his first solo album starts out. All of it done at home. These, none of these are Abbey Road. These are all just Cavendish recordings. Yeah, and he doesn't even remember how he recorded that record. Uh, was it the acoustic guitar? Was it the drums? I don't know. I, I did it, though. And yeah, you're right. It is there. He's rebellious in a very sort of... He likes doing the unexpected. He likes the surprise. Well, it seems as if he thinks it's kind of cool to be underwhelming at the beginning of his first <laughs> solo album you know yeah and it kind of is you know honest he was just going for honest hey this is what i was doing i'm i'm learning i'm learning here you're hearing me figure all this stuff out and yeah I, now to go back to that first listen as a preteen, now here i am three songs into this album you know and, I, and i've got an, a head full of ram and tug of war and i'm thinking what is this you what know? are we dealing with yeah which is why Track four comes along every night, and it just packs such a wallop for me every time this record comes on. Well, it's a big shift from, uh, you know, because we have three three kinds of songs. Uh, recording-wise, we have three kinds of songs here. We have Cavendish-only, Cavendish plus Morgan Studios, and we have Abbey Road. And we're, we're going straight from pure Cavendish here, just totally all Paul, to right into an Abbey Road session. Yeah. High quality performance, Paul doing everything. Every night I just want to go out, get out of my head. Every day I don't want to get up, get out of my bed. Every night I want to lay out. And every day I want to do. But tonight I. I just want to stay in and be with you And be with you This could have lived right next to a Martha My Dear just in terms of quality. That might be actually an interesting conversation. What would, what would the Paul McCartney songs from the White Album and then the McCartney album and some other unreleased material sound as like a actual, I don't want to say a proper album, but like maybe an additional album or an alternate album. Do you think that McCartney and the McCartney songs from the White Album are the sort of natural cousins? Yeah, yeah. Some of them certainly are. Junk certainly has has a relationship to Mother Nature's Son and Blackbird, as and, you said before. And, you know, a, a song like Junk would be the thing that connects you to, like, a Maybe I'm Amazed or mm-hmm. Every Night, where it's like, okay, well, I don't know if Every Night could be on the White Album, because it is sort of its own thing. It's like, it feels, it feels like something he couldn't have made until the White Album was released, or the Beatles, however you guys want to say I do know it was written in 68, though, on Holiday in Greece. So I, I don't know if that was before or after the White Album, though. I'm not, hmm, not sure that. about that. I don't know. Is there, a, is there an every night cousin on the White Album? It's sort of breezy country music quality that it has. It, I guess maybe um, Two of Us 
is the song sure. that's a lot like Every Night. Sure. The, gen- the gentle strumming and the, you know, uh, bucolic quality, um, maybe more than country. I think it's going to, I think, you know, this is a topic we'll come back to throughout, throughout all our, our uh, podcasts that, that you can find pretty good analogies to a lot of Paul's solo songs uh, in his Beatles work. Absolutely. Most of it. Yeah. It's not as if it's coming out of nowhere. Even the things that are perceived as very strange, you can often point to a Beatles song and say, well, there he was doing it with the Beatles. You know? Yeah. Where like, what's a, what's a great example of that? Like, um, call me back again on the Venus and Mars album is quite obviously, to me at least, a sequel to Oh Darling in the Oh Darling yes. vein. Yes, and you gave me the answer, uh, a sequel to uh, Honey Pie or Your Mother Should Know, you know, going with a 20s or 30s style. It's the really big hits, the sort of M.O.R., FM radio friendly hits that don't sound like the Beatles. Silly Love Songs does not sound like the Beatles to me. Not My Love does not sound like the Beatles. So that that's one of the new tricks that he really kind of adds to his adds to his bag and I haven't read much on this but I a couple years ago I went through all of the billboard number ones in the US and the UK I remember listening to throughout the 70s US and UK and hearing all of these not songwriting choices but production choices the pulsing bass lines of disco the the synthesizer use even some chord progressions were Especially mm-hmm. in Paul's, you hear a lot of those. Um, correct One, me if three, I'm, four, or five. Yeah. yeah, I think Paul may have been very aware of what was going on at the in on on radio on popular radio. Because if you listen to the Silly Love Songs demo, it's and we're flying all the way ahead right now. But it's just piano, him singing the song on the piano. That bass line and that drum pattern and the horns, I think that's him studying what's popular, translating mm-hmm. that over his material, and then mm-hmm. making a hit. And I, I don't think, think so, he yeah. was doing that on some of these others. Like, Call Me Back Again, that's just a classic rock song, like an old soul song or something. Yeah, and, and if you think about how quintessentially 70s radio, something like the sax solo in Listen to What the Man Said, I mean... <laughs> You know, that is so 1975 radio. I've got to think that he had some awareness of the trends of the time and was emulating them, you know. Yeah. On, on, a, on a track like that, which he knew was going to be the single. They knew pretty early on they had, the, they had their hit single with that one. And no hit, I believe, no hit off of this record. Uh, no hit off the record, because they didn't re- uh, release Maybe I'm Amazed as a single. I think it got a lot of radio play at the time. Isn't that a story that McCartney was a bit disappointed that it was a hit of sorts on the radio, but wasn't released as a single, and that's why he released it from Wings Over America in 77? Which, you know, maybe a day late and a dollar short, but still a great version. But it, it did well. It, I think it was in the top 20 at least. Uh, yeah, but you know, I'm sure Paul wanted that. I, Paul would have had a number one with that, with the version <laughs> on this record for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and, oh, I mean, we'll get there in a second, but uh, maybe the only Beatles level record on this record? 
Mm-hmm. Maybe. I, I don't know. I think we could argue for every night being Beatles. And night. probably junk, too. Oh, and junk, for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't mean to take us too far off the beaten path. He said on the very first podcast they've ever done. Uh, <laughs> but let's, let's move along to track five. Hottest sun, glasses, and yet I, you know, I find it interesting that they left suicide off of the track, but also suicides on this one. Yeah, well, suicide. You've heard the demo now, right, from the archive. I've heard that, and I, there's this other one that I had. Let's say I acquired it somehow. I won't say how, but there's a demo that I have where it has this intro. Which in the archive collection, there's sheet music, which is unbelievable. Like, I never thought I would see this. Um, it has all the chords and all the, the melody and the lyrics written out. It has this sort of classic 30s or 40s compositional intro to it that has nothing to do with the rest of the song. I guess like Honey Pie. It's, like, it's, it's got a full band behind it. I've, I've heard that too. What I was going to say is that the the demo from Abbey Road from 1970 of Suicide sounds very much unfinished. Um, He's not even singing the melody that we know and love for most of it. It isn't till toward the end he finally gets settles down and sings the the real what I think is was the real melody. He didn't seem to have any of those extra verses or the introductory stuff um, that we hear in later demos of the song. She comes If there's a next time She'll hurt away Because she's on the boat So I'm thinking it was an incomplete song It was a fragment of a song at the time He just was fooling around And they were rolling tape when he when he made that recording And I, do you know Do you happen to know whether they deliberately Spliced it on there or whether it was just Left over on the tape It sounds as if it was maybe left over It might have been A leftover I don't know. I and I'm actually a huge, huge fan. I've always loved this song because it's uh-huh. it's it's elusive in its own way. There's a there's a version from the Get Back sessions where actually Paul's playing along and then John comes in really sarcastically, run away, like kind of deriding him for this style of song. There's the version on the archive collection, as you're saying, is unfinished and kind of bizarre. There's the one-hand clapping version that we see yes. a few years down the road. Then there's that there's other a demo. version, right? The one with the complete song that has a bass line on it. For yeah. It's piano and bass and some reverb, and it's a full song. He's, got, he's added an introduction. And, and there's also think, the piano tape version. That's on there, too. Hmm. There's a lot of different versions of this little song. Do we know I've, which is the earliest version? Is it the one on the McCartney archive? It most like, I'm going to say, officially released? Absolutely. Well, something I wanted to say about this track is that, first of all, Glasses is a beautiful 
little piece of experimental music. It sounds great. As a kid, I really had no idea what in the hell was going on. I thought it must be a synth- synthesizer. I was really charmed to find out later what it what it really is, which is McCartney having precisely tuned some wine glasses, is you know playing them with his finger as as you can do, and overdubbing that at Abbey Road. They did that at Abbey Road, wow. which is interesting. But I've always thought that the fragment of suicide, however it got there, I always loved how mysterious it is. You you get this already mysterious track, Glasses, and then you just cut into this fragment of what sounds like a great Leftover Beatles song, you know? Wow, there's a great McCartney song there, and boom, it just fades out, tantalizingly. I love suicide in exactly that form. I'm happy to just have that. I'm glad I've heard the whole song now and everything, but for me, that's enough of suicide. Once you reveal that mystery, it turns out it's kind of a pastiche song. He, you know, tried to foist it on Sinatra, and Sinatra knew better. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a good song for you Sinatra. It was a joke. Know? Yeah. Sinatra, the chairman. Understandably. Understandably. So, so anyway, I, I wanted to say that about my, my relationship to that track. I really loved the whole track. The absurdity of the track with the three little parts. That's very White Album Beatles. It's also very Paul McCartney solo album. So much of what a Paul McCartney solo album will be for the next 15 years turns out to be really laid out in this album. And these little fragments stuck together like that. I think it takes a little patience to enjoy them. But this is what a McCartney album will be. A couple of, well, a handful of fantastic, beautifully produced songs, some oddball things, and some, you know, fragments and, and strange experiments. Yeah, it's beautiful and it slides so nicely right into junk. Motorcars, handlebars, bicycles for two, broken hearted Paul solo songs. Yeah, 1968 in India, written and just, I, I, yeah, I guess uh, I don't even know what to say. It's just such a beautiful little song, and it gets me every time. And I, when I was listening for the podcast, I just listening to the unlimited version of it. I just couldn't believe how that that song got left off of a Beatles album. Just didn't get it. Well, they had enough great songs not to need it. Well, and for a guy like McCartney, who is often sort of people like poke fun at his lyrics, and I think he's actually a great lyricist. This sounds well. Cool. I was yeah, great These set of great lyrics. lyrics. It's a great lyric. Yeah, Junk is a, has a great set of lyrics, and yeah, it does act as a, a rebuttal to those who claim that McCartney's a terrible lyricist, which he can be at times a terrible sure. lyricist, but he doesn't have to be. It's clear with, from songs like Junk that he can write beautiful lyrics. And I, what I found interesting was that Sing Along Junk, track 11 or track 4 on the B-side, it was the original track, and 
he ended up not using it and, and re-recording it again. And the one we know is just this more subdued, yeah, more honest, more relaxed version of the song. I don't think I would have liked the song as much if it had the sing-along junk track underneath it, the vocal. Yeah. So. Yeah, maybe. I'll tell you, I love having sing-along junk on the album, though. Agreed. Uh, I think the, you know, McCartney's great at the reprise. <laughs> He's very good at bringing a, an earlier song back at a key moment, and uh, that sing-along junk's great for that. It's it's totally harmless, you know, and it serves to tie things together on an otherwise pretty disparate set of songs. Yeah, and also uh, that song, not to harp on, I mean, it is a beautiful song, deserves some attention. Recorded both at Cavendish and Morgan. So mm-hmm. kind of one, he was like, well, we got it far enough, but I need to really polish this one up. So great. He's right. Yeah, dead on. By the way, I love the xylophone. We'll talk more about that later, but I love the xylophone with heavy delay. I always thought it was a cellist. A I always thought it was a, gl- a glockenspiel. Yeah. But I guess if you play in the upper register on a, on a xylophone and put that delay on there, you can... And I think there's a bit of reverb, too. You get this shimmering effect. Quite nice. So then on to Man We Was Lonely, written in bed. Yeah. <laughs> so what's your take on that one? For some reason, that would be something hit me like a sack of bricks upon the most recent release. I've always really liked Man We Was Lonely and thought it was an upper-tier song, or maybe like a second-tier song on this album. Like, it's, it's, it's fine. It's fun. Man, we was lonely. Definitely one of the better recorded songs. It's, it was done at Abbey Road, and it, you know, it, it sounds very professional. It's it's a bit proto Ram though, with the fake country accent, you know. Correct. Uh, and it, it has that very poignant, I guess, verse part. That that part was written apparently at lunch that day because they didn't <laughs> record that afternoon. Yeah, that's but beautiful. It's, it's gorgeous. That's it's gorgeous, beautiful. and it really makes the song. I don't know if I'd like it without that without that gorgeous little, little verse part. Yeah, now that I think about it, that is a really, like, that is such a, I guess I don't put it as high up because the whole man we was lonely line is just a little it's just yeah it's sort of yeah he wrote it in bed he he tossed it off but that middle section is really a mccartney level material it's beautiful it is yeah and the, yeah and it puts it puts the goofy man we was lonely part in a different light sort of yeah because it's very earnest sounding that verse part it, go, it goes from being very jokey to very earnest kind of the uh, the curse of the mccartney solo period right <laughs> maybe but i think it makes for an interesting record Definitely. yeah no i don't i don't love it i put it on about the level of uh that would be something but i, I appreciate it that it that it has more lyrics it's, but in the end i don't think it's the the top level material on the album no it's the first appearance of linda though it's the sort of proto some people never know uh, from wildlife yes but now we're fine all the while. 
I was surprised that uh, at the gu- the guitar work upon most recent listen, all like the, the the steel guitar stuff, which is really just his Telecaster played with like a I think like a drum peg or some kind of metal object, where yes. they're just swirling around and it's like wow this this is great this is this is ear candy it's really nice yeah absolutely that concludes the A side of the vinyl if we flip it over. We get sort of two surprises straight away. Ooh, you is the first of these. It's another Cavendish Morgan double session. And the lyric is good. The vocal performance is, is awesome. The guitar playing is good. Nice riff. The guitar, the, the echo, the feedback that kind of flies around. Even more than um, Man, We Was Lonely. More guitar. Get the aerosol. Yeah, I didn't even know that that was in there. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's real, like just a guy having fun, hanging out. I, I'd like to know what aerosol it was. Like, was WD forty even invented then? <laughs> like, what was he doing? Lysol, spraying Lysol onto my mic. Um, quick little tune into Mama Miss America, which is good. Originally, rock and roll, springtime, take one. Spliced together from two separate jams. Yeah, it's really, it's really one of the, it's really a double song. He just didn't put a slash in the title as he so often does. It should be thought of as, you know, two tracks in a way, um, in the same sense that Hot as, uh, Hot as Sun and Glasses are kind of separate. They do kind of sound a little different, and um, at the very least, they're different, different grooves. Next up, though, is Teddy Boy. And I've always had a soft spot for this track. Another 1968 India recording. Uh, did not make it into, as we said before, a Get Back or Let It Be, however you want to. Phil, uh, Phil Spector pulled it off the record. And yeah, that Anthology 3 version, that's brutal. But I never understood why they didn't like this song. It's, it's beautiful. It's a nice little record. It is. It's one of the best records on uh, on McCartney. I think it's the, some of the top tier stuff on, on the album. This is the story of a boy named Ted. If his mother said, Ted, be good, he would. A lot of interesting chord choices, mm-hmm. modulation. Nice modulation, very yeah. nice modulation, yeah. 
Ted used to tell her he'd be twice as good And he knew he could Cause in his head He said Mama don't worry no Teddy boy's you Taking good care of you Mama don't worry your Teddy boy's you Teddy's gonna see you through and which is sort of why it's like, can somebody tell us, email us, whatever email we put up on wherever we post this, why do people not like this song? I, I just, I would like a good reason. It has a poignant lyric. It, it, it's not out to get anybody. It's, it's great, a great bass line, sort of an underrated bass performance. I don't get it. I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good sounding record. Now, was that one... You'll have to remind me if that one was Cavendish. Oh, that it's one is good... Cavendish and Morgan. There was, okay. So basically it's... for the rest of the record, he's finishing these tracks uh, mm-hmm. in a studio. Moving on, Sing Along Junk. Like I said, it's, it's, a nice, you know, it's nice to bring back a track from side one. It's a trick that McCartney did a lot in different ways um, to, to tie things together. And uh, it's, it's actually a really uh, beautiful rendition of the song. Yeah, I agree. And as you were saying, in the tradition of like Back to the Egg, Open tonight, making a reappearance, or um, right. Ram or, making a reappearance. Yep. Ram on rather. Jet showing up and and Mr. Vanderbilt showing up in uh, Picasso's last words. Picasso's last words, and even Ben on the run showing up at the end of 1985. That's right. So yeah, he definitely knows how to make. He's a master craftsman. You can't discount Paul for that. Yeah, it seems to be one of his points of pride that he can you know, he can make something. He can make a nice chair for you. Here you go. Here's your chair. <laughs> Here is your chair in the shape of Teddy Boy, the song. <laughs> the The next track, though, I mean, I, we could argue this all day, but this, to me, is the maybe the whole, not the whole point of the record, but it really is what solidifies it as like an important piece of music in rock and roll history. Because maybe I'm amazed. Yeah, it takes the the album itself into classic status just on the basis of that song. And track 12, hidden at the back of the B-side. Yeah, if you made it through uh, Hot as Sun, Glasses, and <laughs> Ooh You, there is something waiting for you at the end. Yeah. yeah. Even John Lennon in 72, when he was being interviewed, he like was singing its praises and even singing part of it, part of the lyric. Like Everybody liked this track. And because it is, it's... I don't want to say it's better than anything on Abbey Road, but it might be. Maybe I'm amazed. Just the the power of the chorus and the vocal performance and the fact that he's playing all of the instruments, even that sloppy but awesome lead line, like it is the guitar line. It's amazing. Yeah, he gets a really big sound too. You know, he uses the organ, 
and kind of big uh, mid-range piano chords, although it does, it does a pretty good job going all over the keyboard on the piano part, but resounding chords in the piano, sustained organ chords, sustained background vocals. He gets a big gospel sound going all by himself. this but I think some of the 1976 live stuff is the best he's ever sounded vocally and this is Mm -hmm. this is one of the better vocals of his uh, recording career even a lot of like the late Beatles stuff early Beatles stuff it's not as strong as this yeah it's almost uncanny him going from the sort of screeching high parts into that smooth falsetto just like it's nothing and the fact that this record can sit along right next to junk or Every Night, or like The Power of Ooh You, The Lovely Linda. It's This album is more a testament to his ability than a, a lot of stuff that came before or came after. And he did it all by himself. Yeah, we might not have stressed enough that <laughs> he did the whole album all by himself. These top-level, A-level Paul McCartney tracks. This is all him, uh, either at Abbey Road or one of those studios, uh, or at Cavendish or, or Morgan, overdubbing all the instruments himself, yeah. On that point, uh, Maybe I'm Amazed gets a really good band sound. Yeah. It sounds like a good band. It all, everything's tight. Everything locks in. You know, it sounds like a, a group of musicians who really know how to play together. <laughs> it's, and, and considering this, that this is fairly early on in the days of, of overdubbing, you know, um, I mean, zooming out, looking at the, the grand picture of multi-track recording, they were just at this time getting up to eight-track recording. Paul was doing everything four-track. Um, and to get a convincing, you know, ensemble sound all by yourself on a four-track machine, pretty impressive. Very impressive. And, and how just sort of warm and personal everything is. And I mean, imagine sitting down in, uh, yeah, it was Abbey Road, February 22nd, 1970. Like, the Beatles are basically still around. They, they, they're lingering about. Um, when was... Uh, I wrote this down. Let it like Let It Be was released. I have a complete chronology right here. Let It Be was released May 1970, uh, a month, actually just a few weeks after McCartney was released. Uh, Ringo's first solo album, Sentimental Journey, that was released also in April of 1970. So McCartney and Sentimental Journey came out the same month, and Let It Be quickly followed those two. Yeah, just a flurry of releases. All this stuff. So. There are Beatles albums still knocking around. Lennon's working on all of his stuff. So Paul sneaks into Abbey Road Studios under, it was like Billy Martin or Billy Fields. Billy Martin. That's Billy Martin, Martin. yeah. Yeah. So he's there and he's got the whole song in his head and he's at the drum kit and he just has to rock through a whole performance of this song. For any musicians out there who are listening and who've had to do that or, or recording engineers or producers, it's like, that is not easy. Yes, and that's an Abbey Road record, Maybe I'm Amazed, full-scale Abbey Road, as is the final track on the album, Kreena Crory. Recorded 10 days earlier. 
No kidding. Ten days earlier. Ten days earlier. So yeah, the Abbey Road. If I, if you'd permit me, because I wrote this down. Mm-hmm. So it's Karina Corey, February twelfth, nineteen seventy. Then it's then it's maybe I'm amazed, February twenty second, nineteen seventy. Followed by every night, February twenty third. Followed by man, we was lonely on the twenty fifth. So think about that. Okay. This dude cut maybe I'm amazed. The whole record. Maybe he did overdubs. Who knows? Who really knows if these notes are right or wrong? But then went to sleep, woke up, and then recorded every night. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and, and that, I mean, that pace of, of activity will intensify, certainly when we get around to talking about RAM, which is coming up next, recording basic tracks for a song each day, starting in the morning, going through till the evening. Yeah. But anyway, not to go too far off what you were saying, Karina Corey, Indians in the Brazilian jungle. Paul's trying to capture the feeling of the hunt. I hated, hated, hated this song when I was a kid, and I have really grown to love it. Like it, when the harmonies come in, Paul went to Harrods with Linda, you know, the big department store or whatever you want to call it in London, and they bought a bow and arrow. And they're shooting the bow and arrow in the studio. They even broke the thing. Like, it's just what a wild thought to even include that. Yeah, the bow and arrow. I love the bow and arrow. They actually set up, apparently, multiple mics to get the sound of the arrow. And I mean, so, that alone, you know, that plus glasses, that's, that's some pretty good um, um, recording engineering ingenuity, you know? The spirit of the Beatles is there. You don't have maybe the, the intensity of Lennon or the, I guess, the intensity of the rest of them, but it's still a great record. This is Paul McCartney's first album, right off the Beatles. As we can see, it has sort of a half experimental vibe, half straight serious songwriting vibe. Some unusual choices, but it has this warm, homemade charm to it. It's going to have this long-lasting appeal. It's not weighed down by studio trickery or things that may have made it sound corny. It's, it's a testament to McCartney's craftsmanship, his patience, and it's, it's a great first entry point into what is a very long and very expansive body of work. I, too, would place it pretty high in McCartney's output. It's just interesting <laughs> from beginning to end. And, and a lot of that maybe has to do with the Beatles' glow, that this album still has. Sure. Ram has that too, really. And it's just those two albums, really, from McCartney that have that post-Beatles glow about them. But um, it definitely brings something to the album. I wanted to mention one more thing about, about McCartney, and that is that this last week I spent some time comparing it to Plastic Ono Band. McCartney is known as a, a very stripped-down album. It's known as this one-man band very intimate homemade album 
but it's actually quite a bit more produced and expansive than Plastic Ono Band, uh, John's first post-Beatles solo album. Plastic Ono Band is truly stripped down. It's really just three musicians in the studio with some occasional double tracking on the vocals. Not only that, but it pretty much sticks to a traditional band kind of approach. So really, McCartney, to have done it all by himself, produced quite a varied album, quite an eclectic album with a lot of different approaches to recording and to sound on it. I never really thought of it that way. That's very fascinating when you put it in that context. John with a whole band up against McCartney as one guy is sort of a testament to what maybe Paul brought musically to the Beatles. In 1999, Neil Young inducted McCartney into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and praised McCartney, saying that he loved the record because it was so simple, and there was so much to see and hear. It was just Paul. There's no adornment at all. There's no attempt made to compete with the things he had already done, and so he stepped out from the shadow of the Beatles by doing this. The final thing I'll say is that what we didn't really touch on, with the release, Paul had asked his assistant, Peter Brown, to come up with a series of questions that he would answer that it would act as the publicity that he would do for the album because he just couldn't be bothered with it because of all the stuff surrounding the Beatles. And the one question that sort of caused controversy, and you know, you asked me before what broke up the Beatles. I think it's this. Question, do you foresee a time when Lennon-McCartney becomes an active songwriting partnership again? Answer, no. That right there caused enough controversy and publicity that boosted the album up to number one where it stood, I believe, for three weeks on the U.S. Billboard 200 and peaked at number two in Britain and ended up selling two million copies. Not a bad way to start, Paul. Not a bad way to start. Well, that's it, folks. Uh, that's the first podcast. That was Paul McCartney's McCartney, released in 1970, his first solo album. My name is Ryan Brady. And I'm Chris Mercer. And that's the Paul McCartney Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Our theme music is Martha, My Dear by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, realized by Ryan Brady.